0: We don't celebrate Thanksgiving back home in the U.K., and I believe it is our loss. Now, I understand that the holiday, as it's celebrated here, is born out of historical circumstances that are not our own, and for that reason, it's absent on the British calendar. But what I mean is the theology that attends thanksgiving, the theology that it prompts in God's people is good. Thanksgiving is a good thing. It's appropriate for us to stop and to consider all that the Lord has done for us, all that he is to us, and to give thanks. And for us as a family, it has become one of our favorite days in the whole year. Scripture has much to say about giving thanks. There are many passages that we could turn to to think through what it means to give thanks and how we ought to give thanks. Psalm 100 is just one of those texts. Psalm 100 is short brief, it's simple, but it does give to us a robust theology of thanksgiving. It issues forth a biblical roadmap for how we should give thanks. I wonder this week, as you gave thanks before your Thanksgiving dinner, what specifically you gave thanks for. Most likely you gave thanks for the gift of fellowship, of family, friends, food, lots of F's. (laughs) And that's not wrong. It's good to thank the Lord for those blessings. But if that's all that you give thanks for, then your theology of thanksgiving is deficient. If all that you give thanks for is that which is immediately before you, the tangible blessings we experience every day, then your theology of thanksgiving is deficient. Additionally, I would say if the only time that you think you are giving thanks is when you pause before eating, if that in your mind is the only time that we as God's people give thanks, again, your theology of thanksgiving is lacking. It's not wrong to pause before a meal and acknowledge the Lord's kindness. Indeed, it's appropriate. But the scriptures in Psalm 100 teach us so much more about what it is to give thanks. The inscription for this psalm is a psalm for giving thanks. Everything we read in these five short verses comes under that banner We are supposed to interpret the truths in these verses as part of our giving thanks. And so what the psalmist does here is not so much try to compel God's people to be thankful. He assumes that. Rather, he instructs God's people on how to be thankful. He's not in this psalm seeking to persuade us to express our gratitude. Rather, through a series of commands, he is teaching us how to live a life of thanksgiving. He gives seven commands, seven commands teaching us how to live a life of thanksgiving And he closes at the very end there with just one verse on the reason why. So we'll walk through all of his seven imperatives this evening, developing a theology of thanksgiving. This is what it means to live a life of gratitude, closing with the reason why. The first command he gives, I would summarize is that we should publicly declare that our God is a saving God. What does it mean to live a life of thanksgiving? In part, it is to publicly declare that our God is a saving God. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 1. The psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It's interesting that the very first imperative within the psalm is issued to the whole earth. When you study the psalms, one thing that you can observe and that many have observed is that the arrangement of the Psalter is not incidental. It is not the case that these psalms were dropped onto an ancient scroll, and in whatever order they fell, so we have them presented in our Bibles today. Rather, as you study the Psalter, it does seem to be that there is an intentionality, a deliberate effort to order the Psalms in such a way that there is a narrative story being told from beginning to end. And that means you can often see implications in one psalm based upon the psalms that fall immediately either side of it. With that being said, look at Psalm 98, which is where this unit begins. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Sounds familiar. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And then you go on into Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them, you are a forgiving God to them. Exalt the Lord, verse 9, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 100 Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. There is a level of continuity etched out across the Psalms, and what you see in 98 and 99 very clearly is that the Psalms are being directed towards the Old Testament people of God, Israel, in response to God's saving work. In Psalm 98 and Psalm 99, very clearly the theology in view, is that God saved Israel. He displayed His mighty saving arm as He drew them out of Egypt and became their God. And then, curiously, we get to Psalm 100, and now the imperative is directed to all of the earth. Well, in fact, there isn't so much a change in the recipient from Israel to all the earth as much as there is a note of causation in the verb of verse 1. Some have translated verse 1 of Psalm 100, cause all the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Cause all of the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord by implication with Psalm 98 and 99 in view. You, Israel, respond to God's saving work publicly, sing of his wonders publicly, so that all of the earth sit up and take notice at your God. How is it that we live a life of thanksgiving? We publicly declare that our God is a saving God. And notice there the covenant name of God being used, Lord or Yahweh, bringing into view his covenant redeeming work. For the Old Testament people of God, Israel, this was his act of drawing them out of Egypt of opening up the waters and of crushing Pharaoh's army, entering into a covenant with Israel, forming them as a nation, bringing them to the mountain, giving them his good and perfect law, and then delivering them into the land. As we read that name, Lord, it brings that theology into view. That is what they were to publicly declare before all of the earth. And for us, It is the saving, redeeming work of Christ on the cross that we celebrate. As we receive Psalm 100 this evening, and Lord is our Lord, God is our Lord also, we understand that he saved us, not physically from a land, but spiritually. He broke the cords of bondage to sin by sending his son to die on a cross. And as we take in afresh, again, the saving work of Jesus Christ through song and through scripture and through the word preached, we are unashamed to proclaim the gospel. You see, what Psalm 100 verse 1 teaches us is that any efforts of evangelism should first and foremost be construed in our heart as an act of thanksgiving. Before you think about your proclamation of the gospel as a responsibility that in some way might intimidate and cause you to be nervous, first think of it as a simple act of thanksgiving. It is a joyful proclamation to any who would listen of what Christ has done in your life. This is what it means to live a life of thanksgiving. Second imperative, obey God joyfully. How do you live a life of thanksgiving? You obey Him joyfully. The psalmist goes on in verse 2 and he says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Now we use that verb to serve very, very frequently in the church in many, many different ways, from the stacking of chairs to the preaching of the Word to leading in music. We use that verb serve all of the time. But here in this Old Testament context, it seems that the psalmist is driving us towards the theology that attained to the temple. Look at the very next verse. Serve the Lord, come into His presence. For an Old Testament Israelite to read about coming into the presence of the Lord, they would think automatically of the temple system of going to the Lord and coming into His presence. And before you were permitted to come into His presence, you offer a sacrifice. The sacrificial system as given in the book of Leviticus is the means by which you can enter into the presence of the Lord. And so properly understood, verse 2 there, is a requirement for the people of God to joyfully sacrifice, to sacrifice with gladness. And for us, we are not by any means bound by the sacrificial system given in the Torah, rather... The New Testament equivalent is bound up in one singular verse, namely Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Our whole lives now are offered up on the altar as a living sacrifice. Done away with is the system of bringing the the bull or the ram or the goat and offering it as a sacrifice at the temple. Now the New Testament era teaches Romans 12 verse 1 that you are to give your whole life as a living sacrifice. And so as we read verse 2, we understand that the way in which you live a life of thanksgiving is to joyfully submit all that you are to the Lord. As we thought about this morning, God is not pleased when our obedience is a begrudging obedience. God is not pleased when we embark upon a melancholy type of service, when our obedience is not with the right spirit, not with joy, not with readiness. We are not honoring the Lord and we are not giving Him our thanks. Indeed, we are dishonoring Him. Now, you can't manufacture this joy. If to live a life of thanksgiving is to obey Him joyfully, you can't manufacture this joy. Again, the name used for God is so key. Where will our joyful obedience issue from? It issues from a proper and steady consideration of all that God has done for us. As you ponder the gospel and all of the wonderful blessings that come with it, that is where your joy will combine with obedience, and now you're living a life of thanksgiving. Think about the fact that the Lord has given to you a new heart. You come here this evening with new hearts. No longer hearts of stone. No longer hearts that seek to dishonor the Lord, but hearts that have new covenant impulses. Hearts that desire to honor the Lord and are able to follow his commands. Think about the truth of your adoption, that God has brought you into his family and he loves you now as a heavenly father. Think about the truth of the blessed hope that very soon you will be with Christ in glory. As you probe what it is to serve God as the Lord, your heart will issue forth with joy And your obedience becomes an act of thanksgiving. Third imperative, how do you live a life of thanksgiving? You sing praises to God. So the psalmist continues, second half of verse 2, come into his presence with singing. That's an instruction that the people of God are to note and to intentionally observe and obey. As we come into the presence of the Lord, we are supposed to do so with singing. It's not an accident that Christians everywhere have always been people that sing. It is one of the defining marks of God's people. We sing. Christians gather together, and when they do, they sing. I've read accounts of Christians in persecuted countries who have to be so careful, so careful with their faith. It's found, if it is found out that they are a follower of Jesus, they will undoubtedly lose their lives. And yet, the testimony is they can't help but sing. To risk their very lives in order to sing. In part because your new heart can do nothing other than praise the Lord with melody. It has a unique place in the life of the believer and in the life of every local church. I wonder if you've ever considered why we sing. Why is it that Christians sing? In theory, we could show up every Sunday and the words that are on the screen, we could simply recite without any melody. We would still be rehearsing the same theological truths. And yet, we are compelled to sing. The reason being that when we ordain these truths with melody, now the truth combines with beauty. And that is a potent combination. When the truth is attended by beauty, now our emotions are stirred properly. Now our affections are elevated. Now again, our joy increases. And through singing, we learn to believe yet more upon the truths that we rehearse. You see, as we sing every Sunday morning and Sunday evening, as Christians sing when they gather together, they are instructing their hearts we are learning to believe yet more upon the truths that we claim through song. And so, it should be of no surprise to us that in God's Word, we find the command to sing. We will always sing at this church. We will sing, at least in part, because through our singing, We give thanksgiving to God. Fourth imperative, how do you live a life of thanksgiving? You exercise trust in the sovereign reign of God. You exercise trust in the sovereign reign of God. Verse 3, the psalmist writes, No that the Lord, he is God. Now around this command, the psalmist gives most time, most attention, most words. This sits at the very center of the psalm, notwithstanding verse 5, which is the reason why we give thanks. So setting verse verse 5 aside for one minute, The rest of the psalm forms what we call a chiasm. A chiasm is like a a literary sandwich. So there's a mirror image to this psalm as you work through it. Look at the second half of verse 2, just by way of example. Come into his presence with singing. And that's reflected on the other side in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. They're parallel truths. The center of the chiasm, then, is verse 3. This is the command to which the psalmist gives most attention. This is his burden, as it were, as he seeks to instruct us with a theology of thanksgiving. You are to know the Lord. Now, the knowledge of which he speaks here is not simply an instruction to study and to increase our mental apprehension of who God is. Certainly there is value in much study, and it can be, if pursued rightly, an act of thanksgiving, but it's not what is in view here. To know that the Lord is God, verse 3 of Psalm 100, is speaking about an experiential knowledge of this reality. The psalmist wants us to know through our daily experience that the Lord is God. And he's writing this within a context wherein there would be many other foreign deities. Many, many gods that are named in the Old Testament that the other nations worshipped and the people of Israel were always tempted to worship. And the psalmist says, know that the Lord, the the one that you have entered into a relationship with, know that He is God. By inference, all of those other deities, they're not God. And so experientially, you can know this truth by simply proclaiming to yourself the utter futility of all else that would call themselves gods. In our day, we don't have so named deities as the Old Testament people of God had around them, but we still have many Many gods surrounding us that lay claim or desire to lay claim to our affections and our allegiance. And you can preach to yourself the emptiness of those gods. Money is not God. Health is not God. Family is not God. Your marriage is not God. Friends are not God. Sex is not God. The praise of men is not God. And the list goes on and you know personally what it is that would seek to have your affections and your allegiance and to experientially know that the Lord is God is at least in part to proclaim that those other things are not God. And then positively, positively, you can experience that the Lord is God by rehearsing to yourself and living in accordance with the truths that the psalmist then gives to us. See how it is that the psalmist unpacks the very succinct truth that the Lord is God. He unpacks it by saying, He made you, you belong to Him, You are His people, the sheep of His pasture. He wants you to know these realities, for you to claim hold of these realities and minister them to your hearts as a means of affirming that the Lord is God. He made you. Rehearse the truth on a daily basis that I have been made by God. He fashioned me in the womb. He knows my innermost being. It is God that made me. More than that, I belong to him. He did not make me and then disassociate himself with me to have no place in my life, but I rightly belong to him. Indeed, the relationship I have with God is one wherein I am part of his people, even more, His Word tells me I am one of His sheep, and that wherever I am in life, whatever is my lot, I dwell in His pasture. Consider that wherever you are in life and whatever is your lot, the Scriptures tell us tonight that you are a sheep in the pasture of the Lord. He loves you, and He has ordained perfectly your circumstances. And so you see the progression of thought in just this one verse. To lay hold of the truth that the Lord is God, the psalmist instructs us to think upon the fact that God made us, that we belong to Him, indeed we are His people. More than that, we are the sheep of His pasture. These sound like such simple truths that so often we take them for granted, and we don't care to rehearse them. We don't rehearse them often enough, either in the quiet of our hearts or to one another. And as we fail to rehearse these simple and yet profound truths, we fail to live a life of thanksgiving. Flowing out from a steadfast rehearsal of these truths then is an obedience in accordance with them. You see, all of the doctrines of who God is and who He has shown Himself to be to us then inform how it is we obey the imperatives of Scripture. As you think about the New Testament epistles and even just within Ephesians, as we work through that one epistle as a church, so many commands that Paul gives for us to obey, our obedience is supposed to be informed by our understanding of who God is. It is when we steadfastly understand who God is and that we are the sheep of his pasture that we are enabled to obey joyfully and readily and wholeheartedly. We live out a life of obedience in light of the fact that the Lord is God. You can do very hard things for the glory of Christ when you know That he cares for you. You can desire yourself significantly. Just thinking about our text this morning and the principle of self-denial as a, a central part to the Christian life. You can deny so many worldly pleasures for the glory of Christ with great joy when you know that he cares for you. And when this is how you live your life, now you are giving thanks to the Lord. The fifth imperative that he gives is to seek communion with him. Seek communion with him. In verse 4, the psalmist writes, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So now we're on the second half of the psalm, beyond the center of the chiasm, and the verses that we read, verses 4 and the imperatives found there, start to reflect the earlier parts of the psalm. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise is a mirror image, as it were, of the last line in verse 2, come into his presence with singing. And yet there is a subtle difference, perhaps slightly more of an accent on the notion of simply being in God's presence. Whereas the final line of verse 2, labored our singing. In verse 4, the psalmist labors our communion. How do we live a life of thanksgiving? We seek to commune. With God. For the Old Testament people of God, this would have been a regular going to the temple. It would very much be the the routine that defined their weekly schedule going to the temple. going to the temple to be with God. I'm going to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Everything everything else falls in around that one activity. For us, the ordinary means that God has given to us by which we seek to commune with Him are through His Word, through fellowship with other saints, and through prayer. The New Testament era is not one wherein God is physically dwelling on earth at a defined location as it was with Old Testament Israel. They went to the temple and the Shekinah glory was emanating from there. We don't have that. God has in his wisdom decreed we would seek communion with him through his word and through prayer and with fellowship with other saints. These are disciplines that we are supposed to pursue on a regular basis. Why is it that we are diligent to open this book? As Christians, why are we disciplined and diligent to open this book, to read it, to study it, to think upon it, to meditate upon these words, to memorize them and hide them in our heart, to recite them? Why is it as Christians we are disciplined to seek the Lord in prayer, to set aside times of the day where we will be content to do nothing else but to pray? Why is it as Christians we are disciplined to be present when God's people gather? Well, there are many answers to that question, one of which very simply is because those disciplines are for your good. They're what keep you alive as a Christian. I've shared before, whenever I counsel with anyone, one of my first questions is, tell me about your Bible reading, your prayer life, and your involvement in church. What do those disciplines look like for you? And the very fact that we're in a counseling scenario, something isn't right, something is not going well for you, I can guarantee you that the disciplines of the word, prayer, and fellowship are not what they ought to be in that believer's life. They're for your good. They give life to you. They keep you healthy. But they're also an established means by which we give thanks. As we seek communion with God through his word and prayer and fellowship, we are Rendering unto Him thanksgiving. We acknowledge by giving our time and our energy to those disciplines. We acknowledge the Lord's grace in our lives. And we respond by honoring Him. When you open up the Bible, you are honoring God. You are esteeming Him and His word that He has been gracious to reveal to us. When you pray to God, you are honoring him. You are acknowledging that he has entered into a covenant with you. His ear is open and he is ready to hear you and he desires to answer you. And when you gather with God's people and refuse, you refuse to be elsewhere, but you be present with God's people when we worship together, you are honoring God. You are acknowledging that he has forged this community to be the bride of Christ. And he desires our corporate worship. And the least you can do for your salvation is to honor him by being present. It is an established means by which we give thanks. Sixth command. How do we live a life of thanksgiving? We acknowledge all that God has done for us. So the psalmist says very simply at the end of verse 4, give thanks to him. Give thanks to him. Now it's a different word to the word used in the inscription of the psalm. Different words meaning both the same thing, to give thanks. But the word used here in verse 4 has a slightly broader range. In fact, elsewhere in the Old Testament, the same word is used to speak of offering a sacrifice associated with repentance. So it's a broader sense of giving thanks. It's not simply giving thanks for when someone opens the door for you, When someone pours water for you or serves you a meal, it is much broader than that. It invokes the whole theological spectrum of all that God has done for you. What the psalmist desires in verse 4 as we've entered into God's courts is that now we would stand back and we would marvel at who He is and what He has done. As you read through the Psalter, that's exactly the theology of thanksgiving that we see over and over again. Over and over again in the Psalms, as his people gave thanks, they acknowledged who God is and what he has done. And on that basis, their hearts are overflowing with gratitude. And so it is right for us certainly to give thanks at the beginning of a meal for the food that he has provided. But oh, we should be so much more involved in acknowledging all that the Lord has done for us. We should stand back and see how he has worked throughout redemptive history. From the moment in which that terrible transgression was committed, God acted so as to reveal himself and his plan, and we praise him for that. God, thank you that you did not leave us in our rebellion, in our sin, but you put into place a plan to redeem us. God, thank you that you promised to send a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. God, thank you that in your word we can see how then you sent Moses, you raised up Moses. You drew your people out of Egypt and we see there your power and your strength, how you saved them. You revealed yourself to be a saving God and Moses gave to them your good and perfect law. And in that law, we see your character. Thank you how from that people you raised up a tribe. And from that tribe, you raised up a line. And from the line of David comes Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Thank you that you sent this man, your son, to earth to live amongst us. God, I praise you that while he lived amongst us, he never, ever, ever sinned. I praise you today that Christ never sinned. I praise you that he was willing to die a sinner's death. Thank you that he opened not his mouth, but was led like a lamb unto the slaughter, and he opened up his arms, and he allowed those men to dry nails through his hands, and he died a painful death on my behalf. I praise you this evening for the sin-atoning worth of the blood of Christ. Father, I praise you this evening that the grave is empty. I praise you that the grave could not hold him, but that he conquered death. And in his resurrection, there is a validation of his death on the cross, and there is a foreshadowing of my resurrection. I praise you that in the empty tomb I see what will be true of me one day, resurrected to the fullness of the newness of life that is found in Christ Jesus. I give you thanks for the empty tomb. I give you thanks this evening that Christ ascended. I praise you that Christ is not with us but that he ascended and he is on high interceding for me this very moment. I praise you that you sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me. And the Holy Spirit is with me always, guiding me, informing me. I praise you that the Holy Spirit acts as a guarantee of my inheritance I praise you that you caused the church to be born on the day of Pentecost. I praise you that the apostles wrote and added to the Old Testament scriptures so that I have in my hand the full counsel of God. I can read my New Testament and see what you would say to the church today. I praise you for your word. And I praise you for the hope that you have revealed in it. that One day Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And I do not need to fear that day because I know that I am his and he is mine, and I will be with him forever in glory. That is what it means to give thanks. Give thanks to him for all that he has done. The very last command bless his name. This is, in a sense, a summative command. It, puts his arms around everything the psalmist has said thus far, wrapping up the whole theology of thanksgiving, you are simply stated to bless the name of the Lord. And again, we need another sermon to really consider this, but thankfully there is great overlap, as I'm sure you're already thinking about, there is great overlap with the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians there he instructs that the name of the Lord would be blessed. And he unpacks chapter after chapter why we are to bless him. And then he responds with imperative after imperative. That is how we bless his name. We live our lives esteeming him and seeking to honor him. That is how we give thanks. And you can do this. As one of God's people, you can do this. Because, verse 5, the Lord is good. This is the one reason that the psalmist gives in all of this short psalm, the one reason why we give thanks. Again, his primary concern is to instruct us as to how we live a life of thanksgiving. But he does include in the final verse, why? The final verse, in many ways, is a summation of the two prior psalms. If we indeed read Psalm 98 and 99 as a unit with Psalm 100, and Psalm 100 really is just the The overflow of gratitude that comes as we take in God's work in Psalm 98 and 99, verse 5, is that last sounding note that affirms to us again the goodness of the Lord. And the goodness of the Lord is unpacked for us according to two truths. The Lord is good. What does that mean? It means His steadfast love endures forever his covenant love, grace, mercy, affection, his steadfast love, it never goes away. And his faithfulness carries on generation to generation. Now think about the necessity of those two truths being in place. If the Lord was steadfast, but we did not know his love, then we would be uncertain of living a life in submission to him. If all we could say of the Lord is that he is steadfast, he is steadfast from one generation to the next, but we could not lay claim of his love, we would be uncertain of our relationship with him we would be hesitant to surrender our all to him. By contrast, if we could lay claim to his love, but we were uncertain of his faithfulness. I know that he has the capacity to love me greatly. I just don't know if he will keep on loving me. Again, we would be uncertain to live a life of thanksgiving. But it is when you can affirm both that his steadfast love endures forever, that he is a loving God towards his people and that he is faithful, that the psalmist can proclaim the Lord is good and that becomes the foundation upon which we live a life of thanksgiving. And so as we meditate upon these realities and consider the instructions that God gives to us in his word, May he make us a church that live continuously, giving thanks to the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. Let's close now in prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for this short yet wonderful psalm, psalm of thanksgiving. We are a grateful people. We give you thanks tonight for who you are and for what you've done. We praise you that you are good. We praise you that your steadfast love endures forever. And your faithfulness continues to all generations. Please, would you instruct our hearts in how we ought to live. Help us to publicly declare that you are a saving God. Help us to obey you joyfully. May we always be singing our praises to you. Teach us to exercise trust in your sovereign reign. May we seek communion with you daily. And may we be faithful to acknowledge all that you have done. We love you, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.